Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. Or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour. is another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. Chaz calls in from New York. We'll start off this hour. Hey, Chaz, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah. Good to be back. Hey, same to you, sir. Well, I took uh, your and Chris's suggestion on uh, testing Ubuntu Budgie. Also did some work with Ubuntu Mate. Okay. Um, both pretty uh, pretty solid releases. And I actually landed on uh, the canonical version of Ubuntu with GNOME uh, and a minimal install, which, great feature, by the way. That's how I'm doing Ubuntu from here on out. But I wanted to ask uh, a, if we go in the Wayback Machine, about a year ago, you did an episode, I think it was number seven, on how to perfect the GNOME desktop. Right, yes. And obviously that was very soon after Ubuntu announced the move to GNOME, or maybe even before, I can't remember exactly. Mm-hmm. But uh, obviously the uh, canonical version of GNOME is not stock GNOME, and I was wondering how that episode holds up a year later. Do you have any new suggestions uh, or... Uh, are there ones that are obsolete now, or and uh, is it something you haven't even considered in light of the KDE exodus? Which I hesitate to start another, you know, I hear you. confusion about your opinions on GNOME. But no, listen, man, I I, I do I out. I hear you a hundred percent. So just to recap for anybody that 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 hasn't been a faithful listener like Chaz has from like what episode one. Uh, Basically, Give or take. yeah, so we launched the Ask Noah show April 3rd. A week after that, Dell invited us down to Texas to take a look at their facilities and showcase what they're doing and how they're doing it on Linux. While we were down there, sitting in one of the Dell conference rooms, Chris broke the news to the lead guy at Dell who deals with all of the Linux stuff. And Chris pulls out his phone and goes, huh. Well, look at that. Ubuntu just changed from Unity to GNOME for their next release, just like that. And and the room was silent. Like, everybody was like, are you kidding me right now? And and and, and Chris was the guy that actually broke the news to Dell. And, and I was sitting in the room, and him and I are, like, shell-shocked. And at the same time, we're in, trying to film all of these interviews and, and make a show and put a show together for that week. So it was a really interesting dynamic. Um, and... Shortly, so two weeks after that was Linux Fest Northwest, and I thought, and I said to myself, well, if GNOME is going to be the default desktop for Ubuntu, and it's going to come out next year, then I need to start right now and learn everything I can about GNOME and how to maximize its usefulness. Because up till that point, I had been a Unity fan, and so I, I got my 270. Think that a lot of you remember this story. Got it at Linux Fest Northwest. I actually had it shipped to the studio. Arrived at my office and I had it shipped to the studio and set it up at JB1 and then handed literally handed it to Chris and said make this GNOME desktop work well and so he walked me through and said okay add this extension do this make this tweak make that change and I carefully documented everything that he did 
and then did what any good podcaster would do and i made an episode about it before he could <laughs> so and, and so that's the episode that chaz is referring to and I, I stand by that customization tool set, so to speak. If I were on GNOME today, those are the tweaks that I would make with a couple of exceptions. I'll go through them real quick. The first exception is I wouldn't install the dash to dock extension as provided by the extension teams in GNOME. I would use the canonical one because basically what canonical has done if, 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 if my understanding of this is correct, is they have forked that particular extension, tweaked it to be as Unity-like and a little bit more stable because there were some issues when GNOME updated the dash, that some of the extensions wouldn't update, fixed all of those things and, 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 are, and are now supporting it. So if you, I, I wouldn't take the... I wouldn't take the the uh, the the stock one. I would take the canonical modified one if I were using GNOME on Ubuntu because it's specifically designed for GNOME on Ubuntu. Um, and other than that, all, all of the same. Uh, I and I wouldn't change the default theme. And I used to change the default theme because I like a darker theme. But the issue with the darker theme is on GNOME, and some anybody who's used a dark theme like Numix Dark or whatever has learned this, it sometimes does not render the text on web pages properly, and so the text is dark and the field is dark, and so you can't read the text. You end up having to highlight your text to see it. The default theme in 1804 is, it has like the dark shaded windows and stuff like that, so it's dark enough for my liking, and by doing that, if you just use the global dark theme, that will get you almost all the way there it'll turn the windows and stuff dark and canonical i think has done a good enough job at theming that dark enough for my liking that i don't want to have to deal with that that input issue and so i just i would leave the default theme but other than those two things i still stand by all of those same uh, changes and i am still running arch on one of my machines at home it's integros but i'm still running it on my, one of my machines at home it has gnome and though and when i reloaded it those are still the same changes i put on there despite the fact that it like you said we're like a year and a half in yeah, awesome that's good to hear because i haven't installed dash to dock because we already have a dash to dock and i'm using the light numix theme so awesome. we're good okay there you go yeah the, if, if that's what you're doing i would run that machine just as is i would install things like the ping, ping indicator um, I would install the things uh, the uh, actually the tray icons i believe is now broken or will not work um, because they are trying to eliminate the notifications theme, but that if if it still works, I would install it. I don't think it does. I actually didn't try it on eighteen oh four because I I've, I've been told by people that have have used it that it's broken. I didn't want to upset myself and kind of sour myself on GNOME. One of the things that I really liked about GNOME was the fact that um, there were there was the ability to add this extension and get my icons back where they belong, which is on the top bar, not in some slide out window tray. Uh, I am going to head to, let's see here, let's go to Carl, San Diego. Hey, Carl, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. Thanks a lot for taking my call. Um, I've uh, been a listener since uh, your first show and really enjoy it a lot. I really appreciate your support. Thanks for calling in tonight. Yeah, um, I've got a question on um, your recommendations on a personal knowledge base uh, software system for Linux. Um what your recommendations might be for that. Um, what I want to do with it is it would be for um, notes about projects, ongoing projects I have, um, server configurations, software configs, um, you know, pictures, pictures of wiring in the walls of the house, all that kind of stuff. Gotcha. And because some of it's going to be private, it, it needs to be self-hosted. Um, 
and it'd be a plus if it supports Markdown and inline images and that sort of thing. Uh, do you have any suggestions on that? I do. So uh, the the first, the, I'll, I'll give you what everybody else would tell you, and then what, what the common answer is going to be, and then I'll tell you what I would do personally. The uh, the common answer is use one of the many wikis that are out there, uh, FlexWiki, whatever, ScrewTurn, whatever it was called, uh, MediaWiki. Any of those are, th- that's kind of the go-to. When, when I go into client inf- atmospheres and they say, we need to compile a bunch of information, we need it accessible internally to all of our employees, we want to document this, that, and the other, that's typically what gets set up. Um, personally speaking, from personal experience, I really, really, really like OS Ticket. I like OS Ticket from a support uh, from a support standpoint because people can email stuff in. I can track tickets. I can keep track of clients. All that good stuff. But the knowledge base is seriously second to none. So much so, Carl, that I have. I we actually use our company knowledge base for resources in the Ask Noah Show. If I do a how-to guide. I actually create it inside of the knowledge base, and then we share that link out with the Ask Noah Show because I have not found any software that can top the uh, the the features the feature set that is in the knowledge base in OS Ticket. I'll give you a couple examples. The first is it looks really really nice. So you can have little templates of like I so I have a how to template, and so the how to template gives me I have I have it laid out for my step by step by step, and then inside each step is. A code bracket. So if I'm if I'm writing out a step by step, I can say step one, uh, install the following programs, and then I can put inside of the command block sudo apt-get install, you know, PHP whatever. Um, and so I have that little templated out, so I can just hit add another step, and it automatically gives me the instruction thing, the command block, the description, and that's kind of how I like to format all of the how-to guides. So you'll notice if we ever share a how-to guide, they all look fairly consistent. And if you if you don't want to dig into the why we tell you to execute those commands, which is always there in the description, it tells you. But if you don't want to read all of that, you can do a monkey see, monkey do thing and just copy paste the commands into your computer and you'll have that stuff set up. And that's always been beneficial to me when I'm redoing a system. I don't care why I decided to install that particular set of software, why I modified that config. I just need to get the thing up and running and I'll learn about it later. Uh, and so every time we do something, I'll, I'll document it out and I'll put it inside of OS Ticket. Second thing, the access control system inside of OS Ticket is amazing. So let's say you have your, you're talking about doing it for your, your home inside of your family, stuff like that. But let's say Uncle Joe calls you and says, hey, Carl, I want to uh, set up my uh, my wireless network. And I was just wondering if you have kind of a, a general idea of how I could lay out that, that subnet, like how many static addresses should I reserve, that kind of thing. You can actually go into one of your knowledge base articles and mark it from internal to public. And then you can g- give him a link and he can view just that one knowledge base article instead of all of them it also categorizes everything into separate uh i don't know subsystems i guess so so or so we have how-to guides we have configuration examples we have uh internal documents and stuff like that and so i can i can find things one of three ways i there is just a search function i can just type if i know roughly what i'm looking for the other thing i can do is i can just browse the how-to guide so a lot of times where that becomes useful is i'll have a client and they'll say Give me an idea of some of the ways that we could improve our, you know, whatever it is. And I'll say, all right, I'll go to the how-to guides and I'll go to custom servers and I'll just look through and say, what servers do we set up for people? Oh, we set own cloud, and we set next cloud, we set C file. And I'll just rattle those off and say, well, here's some of the things that you can do. 
And so even if I don't know what I'm searching for, sometimes I can just kind of go through and use it as kind of like a brain dump, which is really helpful. And again, going back to the access control system, I can take an entire category. So we have a category inside of our knowledge base called internal documents, and it contains things like sensitive information that I don't really want out in the public, no matter what. There is no time I would ever share any of those. And inside of that category, I have marked that category as enforce internal on all of those sub knowledge base entries. And so even if an employee were to log in there and inadvertently turn it from internal to public, they act, it's still not actually shareable. And so for all of those reasons, I just think that the knowledge base built into OS Ticket is just so far superior to everything else I've ever tried. We've tried Zendesk, we've tried some of the wikis, we've tried the, I forget the name of it, but it's like uh, PHP, uh, my uh, FAQ, PHP, my FAQ, I think it's called. Um, which is kind of the go-to just if you want a simple, dirty way to, to get that installed. And if you're interested, Carl, what I can do, because it's so easy for me to do from the knowledge base, is I can give you the how-to guide from our knowledge base on how we set up our knowledge base, um, because the installation instructions... Okay, that would be great. Yeah, yeah, the installation instructions, interestingly enough, are actually stored inside of the knowledge base. Right. So Okay. Yeah, that sounds wonderful, Noah. Thanks a lot. I uh, I was going to go after one of the wikis, but I, I'm sure glad I called and asked. Uh, so I'll, I'll definitely give OS Ticket a try. Yeah, I, I, and again, I wouldn't say that there's there might be something better out there. If there is, I haven't found it. And certainly it's one of those things where... Um, there are things that are custom tailored towards, like you, like you said, the wikis and stuff. But it just having used the wikis and having used OS Ticket, I can just tell you, there's just there's just no comparing the two. Jim calls from Virginia. Hey, Jim, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. Say thanks to you. I uh, it looks like I'll be married for forty seven years, not forty six. Congratulations! I take it the uh, I take it the the backup worked or whatever. It did. I uh, I finally. After another day of mulling it over, I thought, you know, I think Noah had it right. He just said nuke and pave, so I thought, all right, I've got the backup, nuke and pave. And uh, the boss is happy, so everybody's happy. Awesome. So, <laughs> uh, but what, my, my question for this week was, uh, had our, our router die on Sunday? Oh, sorry. Limping along on a week backup. But I'm thinking of maybe going with discrete components, like in the Ubiquity line, Yes, you know, like an ubiquity edge router, and then one of their lower end sort of dome saucer uh, wireless access points. Okay, I wondered what you think about the ubiquity line, and uh, if you don't like that, what you know, what you might recommend, and if you do like it, what would you think of for minimal components? Sure, I'm sure we could get one wireless access point for our house. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So I'll start with this. When I got into Wi-Fi networking, Jim, I was we were installing Cisco access points, and they were I think eighteen hundred bucks a piece, and uh, really terrific. Did a really great job, uh, but they cost a lot of money. And uh, shortly after that, I worked for another organization where we installed HP access points, and I, I forget the name of the company that they they bought out. There was another company that they, that made access points for HP, and then HP bought them out. Um, and we still have some of them. They're actually, they're really, they're tanks really. Uh, and those were really great access points. And that was really my first, uh, foray into managed access points. So the, the difference between a managed and an unmanaged access point, Jim is, and you might be familiar with this. A lot of times when we buy consumer grade devices, you buy an access point at like Best Buy, for example, there is just a web page and you log into the web page. And you set the SSID and you set your password and you set the channel uh, and all that stuff. And if you wanted to add a second access point, 
then you would have to buy a second access point and log into its web interface and set up the password and the SSID and all of that. Uh, and the two access points are not really aware of each other and they don't necessarily work in conjunction with each other. Now, a managed access point, basically what you do is you set up a on a, on a server all of the configuration parameters, all of the wireless networks you want to use, any of the VLANs that you want, any of the passwords, all of that stuff goes on the server. And then we, what we call adopt the access point. So you plug the access point in and the access point then downloads all of those settings from the server. So you can understand if you're inside of a hotel environment, like we frequently are, and you're installing 500 access points, it's very, it takes 10 minutes to set up all of the networking parameters inside of the server. And then we just go around, plug access points in the ceiling and just start clicking the adopt button 500 times. And it pushes all those configuration changes down to the access points. Now, fast forward a couple of weeks, let's say you want to make a change. I just make that change once inside of the server and every access point inside of the building picks up that change. So certainly in large installations, there's there's no way to do it any other way. Yeah, almost basically have to do a managed access point as opposed to what we call autonomous access points or standalone access point. Um, the ubiquities are a managed access point, which means you have to have a device to send the configuration to the ubiquity. You can't just program the access point in and of itself. However, there are... So let me back up for a second. So I've I, I worked on Cisco, worked on HP, eventually wound up with installing a lot of Ruckus equipment. And Ruckus, I, I think, is one of the best access point companies out there. If you notice any of the high-end hotels, they're almost always using Ruckus. But again, you're looking at a couple thousand dollars just for the controller and one access point, And you're looking at tens of thousands of dollars if you want to outfit a whole building. So early on, back when we were installing Ruckus equipment and Ubiquity first came out, we took the ubiquity line and stacked it right up against a uh, uh, a um, a uh, I just lost the name but we, we stacked a, a ruckus right against a ruckus system so we had a ruckus system in place unplugged all of the access points exact same building exact same network configuration and just literally one for one swapped it out for some ubiquity gear and we got as good if not maybe slightly better performance they are that good and they are a t they are a tenth of the price i mean they're absolutely fantastic now as of recently as it's just the last year or so ubiquity has come out with a couple of really cool tools that you're going to be able to use the first is you can buy something what, what's called the cloud key and the cloud key is a 79 dollars device that's amazon prime available and it's basically a little tiny mini arm computer that comes with a sd card with the Unify server loaded on it. And so you can literally, and it's PoE powered, so you can just plug it right into a, a powered switch if you want to, and power the, this little ARM computer, and that is your controller. So it, it, you, you talked about the, you know, what what's the minimum hardware I can get away with? You could, of course you could set the Unify software up on a Linux computer if you wanted to. Uh, you could run it on a, a DigitalOcean droplet, something like that. But in your case, especially if you've only got one access point, it's probably overkill. So the cloud key is gonna allow you to run all of that stuff right on, uh, right on your network and as far as as far as you would know after you've plugged these two pieces of equipment in there's no difference between having it and an autonomous access point that you could just configure because it, the the cloud key has a little web interface the whole nine yards it's it's a really slick little setup but if you wanted to go even one step further okay now I'm, yeah go ahead uh-huh i was going to say i'm talking to mr paranoid when it comes to having things you know out on out in the cloud right so uh does does this Access point, uh, access key require uh, require me to have cloud access. No, and it's a really stupid does, name. Does it have to go through? 
Yeah, it does not. Okay. It does not talk out to the internet, and it does not. I, I'm, I'm in the same boat you are, Jim. I hate things that talk to the cloud. I don't want things to talk to the cloud. And because uh, if you think you're Mister Paranoid, then I'm Senior Paranoid because I actually specified inside of my cloud key a default route of. Uh, uh, well, I, do, I specified a default route that does not allow it to talk out to the internet specifically because I don't want. I don't even want to take the chance that there's some sort of code hidden in there that might talk out to the internet but i did plug it into a managed switch and watch to see if that thing ever tried to talk out to the network and i never in, in a month and a half it never did and i eventually just put it into production and said you know what well, sounds good enough to me and the other thing i'll just tell you because i went through the same thought process I, 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 I because the software is not open source obviously i can't tell you with 100 percent certainty that ubiquity has not hidden something in there that talks out. But at the same time, I can't tell you that Linksys or Netgear or HP or Cisco or Ruckus or any of the other manufacturers don't have anything hidden in there that talks out. In fact, we were looking at covering a story just a couple months ago where there was something found in Cisco iOS where their access points were reaching out and there was some sort of government malware stuff injected in there. So it's I, I can't 100% guarantee it, but it's certainly not advertised to talk out to the internet. I have no idea why they call it the cloud key. I think it's because it brings the unified cloud software into your house, into this little key. Uh, but it's, I agree, it's a stupid name. But there is one other, there is one other way that you can further simplify. The, the last, the, the, the simplest, absolute bare minimum thing you can do, Unify actually has an app that you can download on Android and iOS, and you can configure the access point through that app. Now, I don't recommend that because if you ever have to reset your phone, you lose the configuration, which isn't necessarily such a big deal if you say, well, I'm just going to set it up and I'm never going to touch it. I'm just going to leave it. It's probably not the end of the world. And at the end of the day, in a home environment, I mean, what are you doing? Specifying an SSID and a password? It wouldn't take too long to set back up. But because you're going to lose that configuration, I would just spend the extra 70 bucks or 80 bucks or whatever it is and, uh, and buy that cloud key. And of course, we'll have a link for you in the show notes. Yes, thank you. Now, I understand that you can do the cloud key software on, like, a Raspberry Pi. That is correct. Yep, okay. you can, yeah, you can All run, right. you so can run, uh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. You can run the Unify, you can run the Unify software, you can run the Unify software on any, uh, on a Windows, I don't think it runs on Mac, but you can run it on a Windows or Linux server, you could run, and because it's headless, uh, it just runs a web server, you could run it on a virtual machine with no more than 512 megs of RAM, I mean, it can be just a, a tiny, itty bitty little machine, you can run it on any of the, you know, rented servers, and yeah, you can run it on even a Raspberry Pi. All right. So basically, we're looking at some some sort of a lower end edge router, the wireless access point, and possibly or probably the the key, right? The cloud key, or whatever they call it. Yeah, and if you want an unsolicited okay. advice for a for a router, the Microtech RB, uh, I think it's seven fifty. It's the hex. I'll I'll put that in the show notes too. But it is a it's a thirty. It's a well, I guess it's a little. Oh, it is thirty five bucks. So it's a thirty five dollar router. And the thing I was just having a conversation with our with one of our techs uh, last night, and. Um, I was explaining to him, I'm like, this box runs the exact same software that the $2,000 core routers for a lot of ISPs run. I mean, it's the exact same software. It's just less capable hardware because you're not managing hundreds of thousands of users. You're managing, you know, 20 in a household. But I have used this hex light at conferences where we have done, we, we've done internet and we've used it with up to 250, 300 users. No problem. So in a house setting, it would be more than enough and it's 35 bucks. All right. 
Well, I thank you very much for the advice. Yeah, I appreciate you calling in. Thanks, Jim. Uh, we appreciate the call. Again, open phones this hour, one 450 noah That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Max is calling from Minnesota. Hey, Max, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, how's it going, Noah? Excellent, sir. How can we help? Um. So, all right. So uh, I'm setting. Or I'm redoing QuickBooks at work. Um, I work for my father, and um, it's a plumbing company. They have um, two on-staff people that would be doing billings and whatnot, and then one accountant that comes in one once a week. Okay. So my question would be, when setting up a Samba server for the QuickBooks uh, file so that they can just access it, you know, have one central access point for QuickBooks. Would it be beneficial to set up like a domain controller for the Samba server or would it be just easier for me to like, say, put the same amount of users on the server and then just have each one connect to the network share drive. So uh, I hate to be the one to tell you this, but you cannot host a QuickBooks file on a network drive as of, I think that started last year sometime. Um, but the latest update, latest update to QuickBooks, if you're using QuickBooks 2017 or QuickBooks uh, is 2018 out, I, I assume it is. Uh, if you're if you're using the latest version of QuickBooks, yeah, yeah, it looks like it. <clears throat> if you're look, using the latest version of QuickBooks or even the second to latest version of QuickBooks, you can't access a file over the network. It will give you a, a nasty gram telling you that you need to uh, upgrade to their multi-user version uh, and they do their own way of syncing around the network. It's a real pain. Uh, and this actually... This actually bit a client of mine around this time about a year ago. They had a QuickBooks system, and that's what we were doing. We would leave the QuickBooks file on the server, and then the accountants would access it that way. And the reason I wanted it on the server wasn't that we necessarily needed to have more than one person access it, but the server, my Linux server that I trusted, was where we were backing up all of the data. And it actually wasn't Linux. It was... Um, it was uh, a FreeNAS, but it, so it had ZFS and all that. But that's where I focused all of my energy and time to make sure all that data was safe. I didn't really care about the workstations. To be honest, I still don't. Uh, but the, it, it bit me because she ended up moving that file off of the server because it gave her that scary gram. I didn't find out about it. And they had, a, they had a hard drive failure on their workstation. She lost the file. Uh, we were able to get it back, uh, but she, they did lose about a week's worth of work because of it. And uh, that was the day that I found out that you can't uh, store QuickBooks files on on a Samba share. It has to be locally on the machine. Now there is a, a cheating. There is a way that you can cheat to get around that problem. What you could do, and mind you, QuickBooks probably won't support this. So if you run into any issues with it, don't expect a lot of help from Intuit. But what you could do is install something like C file and have C file sync that file between your the the users that want to use that QuickBooks file. And simply just have an agreement with, you know, the user say, I'll access it at this time of the day, you access it at that time of the day, you know, or, uh, or, you know, give me a call if you want to get into it, because if, if I'm into it, we can't open it at the same time, they'd have to work that out, you know, manually, but uh, it would be the same thing if you were accessing it over a Samba share, I guess. But, but that would be a way that you could get around that problem because QuickBooks wouldn't be aware that that file is being accessed by multiple different instances of QuickBooks, it would think it's just so in one place. So they have the multi-user um, 
QuickBooks. I forget the exact um, the exact uh, one model of QuickBooks that they have, mm-hmm. but they have it so they can they can both access QuickBooks in multi-user mode. Correct. On the QuickBooks file. That's correct. I think so even with even with that, you can't do you can't do it through a network Samba share on Linux. If you have the multi-user version, you can you can store it on a server and access it from multiple locations. In 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 the interest of honesty, I have not set up QuickBooks in a multi-user environment. In fact, I'm I'm trying to get as many people off of of QuickBooks as possible because of some of these issues. But I believe that the multi-user version of QuickBooks is not a flat fee. I believe it is a monthly fee. I think it's seven bucks. And then they give you the first uh, like three months free or something like that. But when we looked into it, that was it, it was something like that. So you you weren't able to at least at the time. Maybe they've changed it, but at the time you weren't able to just outright buy multi-user. And the fact that it's a subscription service leads me to think that the QuickBooks data file resides on their server, and you just access the software runs locally and you access it over the internet. But I couldn't tell you that with definitive certainty. I've not set it up. All right. So, um, well, anyways, the, um, for besides the QuickBooks thing, they, we we still need a network share, no matter what, because okay. um, you know they have an engineering file and you know a bunch of stuff for jobs and whatnot, and pictures on different jobs, and so um, I guess, and they want it to be secure mm-hmm. and they want it so that if you're going to access the hard drive, you know, you need to put in a username and password. Okay. So then I guess the second part of my question would be, would it be worth to set up a domain controller through Samba or is the, um, how many work, how many workstations do you have? Or, so three total, man, that's, my my personal rule of thumb is five. If I get any more than five workstations, I set up a a, a domain controller. The 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 issue domain controller isn't going to give you a lot in the way of of Samba access control, right? Like you can set up a FreeNAS server and get all of the user permissions uh, under the sun uh, with FreeNAS, and and you get the adv- advantage of of ZFS. Uh, so if I if I'm setting up a file server and all I'm worried about is sharing files, I I'm I'm going FreeNAS with ZFS hands down, not even a question. No way would I put that on NTFS if I don't have to. Uh, however. Once you start getting above five workstations, the group policy management and the fact, especially if you've got five workstations and you don't know who's going to sit at which table. So if you've got like the the kiosk site set up, which a lot of businesses are going to, uh, where they just have workstations and you come into work and find a spot and work, a lot of places are going to that. You almost have to set up Active, Active Directory and domain, domain Control at that point because uh, because just for the central user management, if nothing else. And if you're already in a Windows environment, yeah. Active Direct. I mean, it's literally three bu- uh, three clicks to set the stupid thing up. I mean, it just it takes no time at all. And the amount of control you get over the workstations to be able to reset user passwords and automate mapping network drives and stuff like that it just it's too invaluable three workstations though you know the cost alone of of do you have a copy of windows server already no that's that's the big uh thing that they don't want to that they don't want to go to so as of right now we've been we have just four windows computers all with windows 10 pro gotcha and one just has network drives mapped off of it yeah. to the other workstations, 
and everyone's um, account is also on that fourth uh, Windows 10 Pro machine. Sure. And then they just access, you know, the drives that way. Yeah, if, yeah, if I'm in your shoes... into a lot of problems. Yeah, that. if I'm not spending six, $700, whatever it is, uh, for... Um, I'm just not doing that. No way am I setting an access control uh, domain controller up for that kind of environment. Uh, I'm formatting. If it's me and nobody's using that fourth workstation, if it's all just if that fourth workstation exists on the network, I'm formatting that thing tonight, putting uh, putting um, FreeNAS on it and creating all the user accounts there, and I'll just deal with managing three individual workstations because it just at that point it just isn't worth it. It's not worth the cost. It's not worth the headache. It's not worth the overhead. It's not worth the domain controller failing and have to migrate all of those all of those machines off because if you don't, it, it gets complicated if you have a domain controller and and that domain controller fails and you have to migrate those machines to another machine and you don't have another controller on the network it, it it gets to be a pain i'm not going through that overhead for three stinking machines no way so that's what i that's what i do max i would set up uh, i'd set up a free nas machine uh, it'd take you 10 minutes to, to it's a step-by-step -step thing to set up the, the the samba shares you can create all the user accounts right inside of free nas uh, and if you wanted to get more advanced like you wanted to do like central auth and stuff like that then i'm then i'm going to look at like ras dc or something like that and a lot of those a lot of that functionality can be put into FreeNAS itself. So that's what I would do there. Again, open phones this hour, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at asknoahshow.com. Nathan calls from Michigan. Hey, Nathan, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hi, Noah. How are you today? Excellent, sir. So I have, um, uh, I, I got a USB three and a half inch floppy drive. And um, I can read discs, but I can't write to discs. And uh, I thought maybe I was, you know, losing my mind and forgot how to write unprotect these things. Mm -hmm. But that's not the problem. Even even as root, and I thought maybe the permissions thing, user permissions, and as root, I can't figure out how to. It doesn't want me to write to it either. You said these are. Maybe, you said uh, these are three point five inch discs. Yes. Okay. Whopping for 1.44 megabytes of storage each. 1.44. Let, let's, uh, so, okay, so here we go. Here we go. We're going to break out the uh, 1995 troubleshooting, okay? Have you tried yeah. sliding the little square thing in, at the rear of the disc to, to make it closed? Yes. Okay. All right. That's and step I, one. I even, I even double checked and looked that one up. <laughs> okay. Uh, that's so. So I guess Nathan, here's what I would do if I were in your shoes. Man, I tell you what. When I started the show, the chances I thought that anyone would ever call this program and ask for help troubleshooting a 3.5 inch floppy disk, I think, are slim to none. And I, I just, I'll take a side moment just to say, I really, I'm really upset about the fact that we never really re truly replaced floppy disks. Like there still is really nothing. I mean, I guess the flash drive sort of, but. There's really no drive that is built into the computer where I can change the removable media in the drive and it's become common just to share data that way. Uh, these days, we, we disconnect the entire drive. You know, there's nothing I can have connected to the PCI bus. So it's kind of frustrating. But um, I, if, if I woke right. up in your shoes, Nathan, and I wanted to do what you're doing, I think what I would do is install a version. I'm not kidding about this. I would install a version of 1004 uh, Ubuntu and try to write data there. And once I made sure that the data was able to write and the, the there was nothing wrong with the hardware, nothing wrong with the disk, everything was good that way, then I would start working my way up to what has changed between 10.04 and, geez, 18.04 as it relates to floppy disks. And I'm guessing there's been a lot of drivers and stuff that have been stripped out of the code because 
nobody other than you really wants to write to a floppy disk. Right, I'm probably the only person um, that the sun is shining on the planet right now that would care. Yeah, maybe. I, I mean, you know, this might be a little harsh because honestly, the honest to gosh truth is I have a huge interest in antique hardware. I think it's really fun to play with. So I've got old IBM 286s and stuff that I play with. I still have my Apple IIe uh, that I can play Oregon Trail and the 5.4, you know, 5.5 inch floppies or whatever. The ones that say ultra flexible, do not bend. You know, I, I get a kick out of stuff like that. So, I, I you know, and I still got my original Windows 95 on all 13 floppies. So I don't know. I, I it's not something I you know I'm I I could find myself in that boat, but unfortunately, I have no idea how to write data to a floppy in 2018 on 1804. But would that work? Could you use an older Linux distro to write some data to it? Yeah, that's, that's a good idea. I, I might consider like actually putting in virtual machines. So I don't have to you know wipe the computer itself. Put a virtual machine. See if I can get it to work from there because I can you know mount the the hardware right. Yes. To give that a try. Yep. Yep. I actually. And that, and that would then eliminate the. Uh, yeah, I would eliminate some of the problems. You know, the other thing, Nathan, is I have actually used a virtual machine. I just set up a virtual machine with Windows 98 recently um, because I wanted to interface with some older hardware and uh, did some basic troubleshooting on Windows 98 and then slowly worked my way up to Windows 7, uh, which was pretty cool. So that was so it does work. And those older operating systems, believe it or not, do virtualize pretty well. Robert is calling from Texas. Hey, Robert, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hello, sir. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, sir. How can we help? Yes, sir. Um, I own a small computer repair company, and the thing that I'm running into a lot is I'm trying to sell Linux to people, but they're just so, I guess, scared of it's such a big change. They just want me to put, you know, some version of Windows on there, and I just want to know any advice you can give me that actually can convince people that it is better and it's not that hard to use. Sure. So I'll give you some history. In 2009, when I started AltaSpeed, we made no money the next couple of months because, you know, brand new company. And uh, obviously I was out working, negotiating some contracts. And I'd previously worked for a company where I was doing a lot of server deployments. I was working inside of the enterprise and that's what I knew and that's what I understood. And so that's, you know, really where I knew I wanted to wind up. But negotiating contracts with businesses takes a while and I needed to put food on the table. And so what I started doing was doing a lot of day-to-day -day home PC repair stuff, and I'd have people bring their machines into the shop. And uh, I didn't really like doing it. I still don't really like doing it, but it paid the bills. So, and, and what I found was I didn't want those customers coming back. I wanted to fix it, and I wanted them to leave and then not come back because that meant I had to do it over again. And it just got frustrating reinstalling Windows for people, fixing drivers, reinstalling printers because some update broke it. It just got frustrating. And so I was trying to push more and more Linux for these people because I felt it was a better choice for them. And one of the things that worked really well for me in, in, in that situation was I would tell the customer, listen, here's the thing. 99% of the time, they don't have the disks that come with the computer or they want you to do something that isn't legal to begin with. I don't know about you, but I would get people all the time would bring me a machine that had a certificate of authenticity for, you know, Windows at the time, you know, Windows 2000 or whatever. And they would say, well, I really want Windows Vista on there. How do I get Windows Vista on there? And uh, I had some... Yes, sir. Uh, and I would have some... Un the, pro the problem for me anyway was I had unscrupulous competitors that would just pirate the software and say, well, I'll put it on there for you. 
uh, and and then there's me, and I'm saying, well, you'd have to buy a certificate of authenticity, or you know. And they said, well, that other guy put it on there. Well, did you pay him for it? Because uh, he should have given you a box or at least a little card that had you know a product key on it. No, he didn't give me that. Well, did you pay him for the copy of Windows? Well, I paid him the fifty bucks to fix it. Yeah, okay. So probably not a legal copy of Windows on there. I can't do that. And and the the issue was because it was kind of a double edged sword. I would lose customers over. It. They'd say, well, the guy across the street, he he did that for me, you know. And uh, and so that got to be frustrating. And so what I did was I'd start to say, look, here's the thing. What they're do what what that is not legal to install a version of Windows that you have not rightfully purchased. So here's what the cost of Windows at the time, Vista or Seven or, or XP or whatever it was. Here's the here's the copy of what it would cost to buy a proper license of Windows. I have a, a, a basically an alternative to Windows, and it runs very much the same way. Does a lot of the same things. You know what do you, what is it that you do with your computer? Well, I check my email. I watch some videos online. I, I email with the grandkids. Okay. I have a, a, a software package that will do all of those things. It is almost immune to viruses and malware. It's much more secure than the the older versions of of Windows, and so it's it, it's because it you know in Linux we get newer packages, the newer versions. So that's an accurate statement to say this is newer software. So I've got newer software contains all of the stuff, basically immune to viruses and malware, much more secure, and will let you do all of those things. And the greatest thing is. It never slows down because you talk to any Windows user, particularly back from that time, they will tell every one of them would say, yeah, my, you know, I use my computer for a while and it just slows down. And a lot of people, they just go, well, I guess my computer is pretty old, so I guess I should probably upgrade. No, you don't need to upgrade. It's, it's actually your hardware is just fine. So you don't need to buy a new computer. I can just install this software on there and it will work just great. And I tell you what, you take it and try it for 30 days. And if after 30 days, it's not working for you. you. Bring it back, and I'll cover the cost of what it cost to to, uh, to throw a copy of Windows on there. Never had one person bring it back and tell me to reinstall Windows. Never once. And I I have since employed that same tactic uh, when I'm inside of a business. And we actually had one business where they said, "No, we want Windows." And you know, business contract. I'm not giving any way thing away for free. So I just tell them, "Here's the price. You want me to install Windows? Here it is. You don't want me to do it? It's up to you." And they said, "Yeah, go ahead and order the uh, the recovery disk. Go ahead and put Windows on there." I don't remember what HP was charging for them. Sixty bucks, seventy bucks, something like. Like that and I said okay so they paid for these recovery discs we put Ubuntu on it in the meantime guy calls me back on Friday and said those recovery discs come in I said no they'll be here on Monday Monday I call him I say yeah those recovery discs came in he goes the reason I called you on Friday was I was hoping that we could cancel that I actually don't think I want to go through with restoring the the system this machine has been faster now with this whatever it was you put on it than it ever was with uh, with Windows 7 so just uh, I don't know if there's a way I can get my money back or whatever but if if not I, I was fine so he's willing to eat the $70 to not put the software he originally absolutely insisted on having after just using Linux for six days uh, and, and so just getting people to use it for a little bit almost always will push them over the hump. And if you if you don't have the confidence that if you think they're going to come back to you and you're going to start to get taken advantage of, people are just going to start bringing machines back and saying, well, now I want my free copy of Windows. Maybe don't offer that. Maybe just say, go ahead and just try it for one week. I'll put it on there. Uh, I won't charge you anything for the software. You give that a shot because I think that'll work better for you. And maybe just give your labor away and say, well, if it doesn't work out, I'll put Windows on it. You'll have to pay for the Windows copy, but I won't charge you for the labor to reinstall uh, and put Windows on there. Uh, that almost always will get somebody out the door on Linux. And once they do, they almost never, ever go back for two reasons in full disclosure. One is because all their data is on there and they don't want the process of resetting it up. But two is they genuinely figure out it's better. Okay. Thank you very much, sir. That's yeah. Great advice. Yeah. I appreciate the call. And uh, do me a favor. Give me a call back and let me know how that works out. 
Again, open phones, 1-855-450-6624, the email, live at asknoahshow.com. We have an interview coming up, and I, I see the rest of you lining up in the in the, in the the call queue, so I will get to you uh, very shortly, but I, I don't want to keep our guests waiting here. There is a gentleman who has been a part of the Ask Noah Show, a part of Jupiter Broadcasting, a part of a lot of productions that we bring to you. And you guys don't know his name. You guys have, have not maybe heard from him directly. I don't know if he's been on the shows before, but he has played an instrumental role throughout. One of the ways is he always has a backpack full of gear for me. And so there was a time, I don't remember where I was, but we were doing a live show and one of my cameras, the battery was dying. And I was like, oh man. And he, he pulls out this ginormous, the biggest USB battery pack I'd ever seen in my life. And, uh, and he, he, he pulls this out and he plugs it in. And he just, without asking do it he just all right hey he needs power get him power and plugs his whole thing in and he let me use that battery pack for the whole weekend and two things stood out to me about that one it was wow that battery pack lasted the whole weekend that's pretty incredible but the second thing is this guy just goes out of his way to help those around him and the guy is a true geek he really understands and cares about technology and so i have followed him on google plus for a while i follow his blog i follow a lot of the stuff he posts on social media if there is a new gadget out there, particularly a gadget that is made by Google, this guy either owns it or has played with it or has done a lot of research into it and just knows a lot about it. And 90% of the time, those gadgets are in his backpack. He was one of the first glass holes with me. Welcome to the program, Mr. Keith Meyer. How are you doing today? I'm doing great in yourself. Excellent. So last week we dug into the Chromebook thing that is going on where basically Google, uh, there's a lot of speculation that Google is going to release native Linux apps on Chromebooks. Now you are one of the, uh, one of the only people I know that you actually have a Google pixel book. I actually do. And, and so I'll start with this. What do you think of it? Just as a general piece of hardware, I had the original Pixel, thought it was a great piece of hardware, but tell me a little bit about the Pixel book. Why did you decide to buy it? Have you noticed any limitations of having, you know, this thing that runs Chrome, but is as expensive as a regular laptop? What do you think about it? So I bought it after my Samsung Chromebook Plus took a fall off my standing desk and uh, the screen shattered. Uh, but since buying it, after... After about a week of using it, it has actually become my primary laptop. It has. And that's without Crouton, without really, it's actually that good. Keyboard is amazing. The hardware is amazing. Everything just feels great. And since that time, you have, uh, uh, you were one of the first people, I think it was, um, was it Termo? What was the app that you, uh, you introduced me to where you could get a native shell right on your Android phone to do like SSH and stuff like that? What was the name of that app? Uh, that was Termux. Termux. Okay, yeah, I thought so. Right in the Play Store. Yeah, and so, and that was one of the first times, because I was one of the first times I had met you, and uh, after you gave me that app recommendation, I installed Termux on my phone. I'm like, wow, I can get a negative client right here on my phone, and I can SSH into things, and I previously had used things like Juice SSH and stuff like that, and they all had various issues, and Termux was one of the first things I was like, and that guy knows something that literally every other Android user and every other Linux user seems to not know. And I started showing it to people. I'm like, you heard of this? No, I have never seen that before. You heard of it? Now, of course, everybody's heard of it. But back when you showed it to me, it was, it was like really cutting edge and cool. So I'm interested. As a person who has followed all of this stuff, who has, who spent the money to buy the nicest Chromebook that Google offers, what do you, and as a Linux advocate, what do you think about native Linux coming to Chrome? Why do you think Google's doing it? How do you think, have you played with it? How is it working? So I've been playing with it quite a bit over the past uh, two or three weeks. It's 
of course, still very, very beta, as with anything Google. And knowing Google, I'll probably be like that for seven or eight years. But I think Google's actually doing it right. Um, on last week's uh, show, you guys are worried about, you know, Google having their hands too far into it. And it turns out it's actually just a pretty stock info of Debian. Really? There's not, not really much that Google did to it. So they're not digging into the kernel or anything like that? Added one repository. No, it is a stock upstream kernel that's actually maintained by Debian. Wow. When you do an app upgrade, it actually pulls it straight from the Debian repositories. So all of the people that are concerned about the Google privacy stuff, this comes, because Google obviously is collecting information on these Chromebooks, but that is, you're saying that's all happening inside of the Chrome browser itself? It appears that's limited to the Chrome browser. What happens inside of the, uh, what's known as Project Christine, or the native Linux apps, it doesn't appear there's any insight into it at all. What, will have what, how, what, what was the process of getting native Linux apps on your Chromebook, and what do you think of them? Which apps have you tried, and how do they function? Uh, so I've tried a few apps. Uh, the first one I got running was Firefox. Um, you, you just install it with apt. Uh, apt uh, install Firefox ESR, and it installs. It's that quick, and then you can just launch it. It even shows up uh, in the latest update to the uh, it even shows up in the Chrome OS application launcher, just did, like uh, just like uh, Android apps and Chrome apps. Did you have to put the Chromebook into like a developer mode to get down to the terminal? No, it's actually not in the developer mode, but you do have to be on the developer channel. I see. So you don't get that white screen when you turn it on. You're actually you, you just go into the uh, settings page of your Chromebook and you hit change channel. And you set it to dev, and this will only work on the Pixelbook right now. Okay, so you go in there, you set it to the dev channel, and then I, I assume the first app you have to install is a terminal, or Chrome OS comes with the terminal app? No. No, you just launch the Chrome OS terminal, which is uh, Control-Alt-T. And okay. the terminal, you just uh, there's a few commands you launch, BMC uh, start, and then the container name. But as of the latest update, it actually shows up in the native... Uh, settings menu of the Chromebook, you'll actually see something called Linux apps. Really? And once you click on Linux apps, just like, just like when you uh, have a Chromebook, uh, if you set up a new Chromebook and you have the Play Store, right above the Play Store actually shows Linux apps with a little penguin icon. Wow. And you click on it and it will actually download uh, something called Termina, which is Google's uh, environment, and it's a full-blown shell. And then once you, once you install that, it's about 200 megs that it downloads. You go into your application menu, you'll see Terminal, click on it, and it just drops you right into that Debian install. Interesting. That's incredible. So why is Google doing this? Why, why do you think that Google, after, after pushing Chrome OS, after pushing Android, why now are they interested in native Linux apps? Uh, based on the talks at Google I.O., it seems like they're more focused on developers right now. So... I'll be honest, there's some things that just don't work, like do not try to install Steam. It just doesn't work. But uh, things like Android Studio is uh, really compelling to developers, for example. Because right now, what's the point of having a $1,200 Chromebook if you can't develop on it? You have to have a carry on a Mac or a PC or a Linux machine. Uh, I carry around a Dell XPS before this. So Google's looking around. Google's looking around their own shop, and they're saying, you know, we got people with MacBooks. We got people. I think they're phasing them out, and they've replaced them with X1 Carbons. But they're looking around, saying, we got all these X1 Carbons, these Lenovo's. Mm -hmm. We have. We make our own sixteen hundred dollar laptop, and our own developers. They're not using it. Why is that? 
well, maybe it's because they can't actually get any real work done. They need Linux to do that. And so this is the way to, to, to move that needle forward. Yeah. And, and as you mentioned last week, when we were at, uh, at Southeast Linux Fest a few years ago, saw a lot of people with Chromebooks, but a lot of them were either running Crouton or they flashed a different operating system and were running that on, to, um, on it altogether. So they weren't actually using Chrome OS. Right. This actually makes Chrome OS incredibly usable. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's it's interesting you bring that up because I have seen the exact same thing at, at a lot of the Linux fests, uh, particularly the ones that get away from like the commercialized versions of Linux. It, you get you get in the more commercial stuff, you see a lot of MacBooks, but get into the other ones, you see a lot of Lenovo's and you see a lot of Chromebooks. But if you actually look at the Chromebooks, they're not running Chrome OS. They're either running Crouton. If you're not familiar with Crouton, basically what it is is a Linux environment that runs kind of sort of on top of of Chrome OS. Uh, more is is that is that an accurate description, or they just wipe Chrome OS off there completely and just install a Linux distro? Correct. Crouton runs in the Shavuot, and it has to be in developer mode, so you're actually opening yourself up to some vulnerabilities um, just by having that. Not to mention turning it on. Yeah, that really loud beep, and if somebody hits space, it wipes your data. Not cool. This, right. None of that happens. Right. So what he's talking about that. So we talked. We touched on this briefly the other day. Uh, last week's episode, when the Chromebook turns on, one of the first things it says is, hey, I want to make sure that you're only booting Chrome OS because that's the only safe version of software to run. I've noticed that the thing that I use to check to make sure that only Chrome OS is booting is turned off. Just go ahead and hit space and I'll turn that back on for you, boss. If all you have is a Linux distro and you push push space instead of, a, is it control L? If, if you hit the space bar, it turns that boot flag back on, and then it will only boot Chrome OS. And because Chrome OS isn't on there, you can't boot into Chrome OS to turn that boot flag back off. And so you can't boot into your Linux distro, and you can't boot into Chrome OS, and so you have to wipe the whole thing clean and start all over. First, you have to install Chrome OS, then you have to go into developer mode, then you have to wipe the thing clean, then you have to turn the... the uh, boot right flag off and then you have to install your OS. So that's a real pain. So that that's that's a really important I, I think thing that that Google is doing and I I I guess I just the reason I wanted to get you on the program is because one you're actually doing this and two I purchased a Chromebook this week and I have been playing with it and one of the things I noticed right away was and I knew this going into it I, I guess I shouldn't act like it was it was some big surprise but I can't get native Linux apps on there but you've been following Google IO very very closely and they talked about Chromebooks and these native Linux apps coming to the other Chromebooks other than the Google Pixel later this year they didn't give a specific date and they didn't give specific models but they addressed it in one of the breakout sessions Correct. They didn't give specific models, but based on what I could see, uh, it looks like anyone that has the Android or the apps or the uh, Android or the Google Play Store, I'm sorry, should. And I'm saying should because I can't guarantee that get support for uh, Chris CD as well. That's absolutely outstanding. So, or, or the ability for them to exist. So you you were talking to somebody out there that maybe is look maybe they're on Windows, maybe they're on Mac OS, and they're saying I'm interested in get into the Linux thing. Linux has always made me kind of nervous because I couldn't buy a computer straight from a vendor that has Linux pre-installed, or if I could, it's going to cost me a lot of money. And uh, and so I want something that's going to be accepted in the enterprise. Not, I ordered this Dell and it came with Ubuntu. I want to say, I just, I have a Chromebook. That's what I have. But I also don't want to give up my ability to, you know, edit photos or run Firefox. I think that's kind of funny. There's a certain poetry in the fact that the first app that you installed on your Google Chromebook is Mozilla Firefox, right? 
But if you're talking to that person, that is correct. Yeah, is is it is it worth it to go out and buy a, a, a Chromebook? Is it worth it, even if I'm not buying the Pixelbook? Maybe I'm buying one of these three hundred and fifty, four hundred dollar Acer's. Is it is it still worth it? I, I would say yes, um, but keep in mind there's some lower end Chromebooks that cap out at two gigs of RAM. I would go at least four if you want to run Linux applications. Eight would be preferred. Okay, how about um, how about storage? Would be the minimum amount of RAM. Uh, that's where the old OHS oh, Chromebook it only needs 16 gigs of storage is going to be a problem. Um, I'm sitting on the 250 gig uh, version of the Chrome or the Pixel, uh, the Pixelbook, but I could see, especially with the ability to run and install large Linux apps, storage becoming a problem. Um, right now, there's no support for SD cards or external storage. I'm hoping that changes before it rolls out to other devices. The Pixelbook doesn't support that anyways, but I'm hoping that the ability to install the image onto a uh, SD card. I hope that becomes a thing in the future. It looks like it might be. So Google had to have been thinking about this for a while because who ships a Chromebook with 256 gigs of storage? I mean, that's unheard of, right? All of these Chromebooks are 32, 64, you know, 32, 16 gigs, 32 gigs, 64 at the absolute max. When I bought my Pixel, uh, 64 gigs was like, that was like the ginormous uh, version because they expect you to save everything on Google Drive. And the way Google Drive, it functions almost like a local drive and the, the machine is almost useless when not connected to the internet prior to this whole uh, Linux apps, Android app thing. So Google had to have had in the back of their mind planning this for some time when they released the Pixelbook, don't you think? Correct. You could actually, uh, one, one thing people, uh, I don't think a lot of people realize is Chrome OS, or actually Chromium OS, which is what Chrome OS is based off of, it's actually free and open source. So you can actually go view the source code for Chromium OS, which is pretty close to Chrome OS. And the, the uh, infrastructure for these virtual machines that, to run Linux applications, it's actually part of the Chromium open source project. So you can actually view that. And you can see that the framework for this was actually starting to be implemented as early as a year ago. Wow. A few little bits and pieces of it start to come together. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on this program and talk about this. I appreciate what you're doing. You know, we have directed people to the uh, Christini Reddit to, to keep up to date, but I know that you do a lot of hands-on stuff and you blog about it and you post about it. People want to find more information. Where can they go? Uh, you can go to my website or you can uh, follow me on Twitter uh, at Keith Myers. Uh, and also the Reddit's a very great resource. If you have anything, if anybody has anything they want me to specifically test, just shoot it my way. I have no problems testing things. Yeah, you're good about that. I've, I, yeah, I've seen people do that. I've seen people talk to you, reach out to you, and you say, no problem. I have that piece of hardware. You have that new VR thing that you're, you're playing with. You know, I'll, I'll try that for you. I'll check it out, and then, you, and then you report back on it. It's one of the things that I think is so valuable to the community. So we'll have a link to your website and to your Twitter handle in the show notes. Keith, Keith Myers, uh, thanks so much for coming on the program and talking to us about this. No problem, no. All right. Again, phone lines are open, one 855 4506 The email, live at com. Mark's calling from Maine. Hey, Mark, welcome to the Ask Noah Show, if I push the button. There we go. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, Noah, thanks for having me. Yes, sir, how can I help? Uh, concerning multi <clears throat> multiple VPNs, um, I'm a system administrator for a company in which uh, staff at my company connect to their clients, and each one of their clients has some unique VPN solution or remote desktop solution, and it's become a real headache for me to try to manage all of these because 
you know, something happens, an update breaks something, or, you know, who knows what. Sure. Uh, things aren't working for some reason or another. So I'm, I'm trying to, I'm not an expert in VPNs or, or such things, but yeah, I got you. a way possibly to unify things. Yeah. There, Do you have any ideas? Yeah. The best way that I can think of to handle that particular situation is do it at the router level. So Microtech, for example, has a VPN client. So you would set all of those basically VPN connections up one time and then your router will handle the connections to the various different endpoints. That doesn't work. Give me a call back next week. Hey, did you guys know this episode is available as a downloadable podcast? To subscribe to the feed or download the latest episode, visit podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find not only the latest episode, but all of the articles and materials referenced in this episode. You can get the latest, of course, by following us on Twitter at Ask Noah Show. The Ask Noah Show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. A huge thanks to Vox Telsus providing our phone systems, been our producer, and... Simon quickly filling in his call screener. This hour of the show may be over, but there's plenty of more content 24-7 at asknoahshow.com.